Hey, this is Sharon, and in today's episode, I dig into one of the most inspiring stories of Omar Alatar. He went from being a door-to-door solar panel salesman to interviewing $10 billion worth of guests on his podcast, The Passionate Few. This includes John Paul DeGioia, Tom Bilyeu, Grant Cardone, the creator of Hot Cheetos, the founder of Ugg Boots, and so many more. We actually deconstruct where this idea came from for Omar, how he wrote the business plan, and most importantly, how to land celebrity guests on your show, how to connect with people that are way out of reach. We actually talk about how do you get in front of them, how do you contact them, and even tactically, how do you get them to say yes and want to be on your show. This is an awesome, inspiring, and extremely tactical episode with the host of The Passionate Few and my friend Omar Elatar. You're going to love this one. One thing is for certain. Just because it's tried and true doesn't mean it's working right now. So the big question is this, where can you learn what is working right now? The strategies, the tactics, the psychology, and the exact how-to. How to grow your business. How to blow up your personal brand and supercharge your personal growth. That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Sharon Srivatsa, and welcome to Business School. So, Omar, we have $10 billion worth of guests on your podcast. Sure. Um, and, but it didn't start like this. <laughs> this, is, this. It didn't start this way, did it? Um, no, not exactly, man. You know, it was interesting. Four years ago, I was in a place uh, where I wasn't really happy with my life. I was trying to find answers. I was trying to figure out, you know, how to make things work. And, uh, yeah, man, I was working at Tesla, I'm $30,000 in debt, and I'm looking for a vehicle to sort of live the dream or do something meaningful. I wasn't really thinking about business or reaching millions of people or anything like that. I was just thinking about doing something fulfilling. And uh, I mean, the closest I could get to that was making a high commission, knocking doors, selling solar, and uh, obviously selling Teslas. would end up quitting that, hired a life coach one day. And uh, after a girl broke up with me and being in a rock bottom situation, feeling like the walls were all caving in on me, he asked me, Omar, if life was perfect, what would happen next? And uh, I wrote down uh, what would end up becoming the the passionate few and said, I want to surround myself with inspiring people. Um, I I want to inspire millions of people. I want to have a team around me. I want to have a business that's meaningful. Um, I want to make millions of dollars. I want to have clarity of what to do for the next 10 years. I want to be addicted to a vision that's fulfilling. And little by little, I just started piecing together ingredients. And then little by little, the, the, you know, what would end up becoming the show sort of uh, came together one, one interview at a time. And those first interviews, just to give your audience context, uh, and you context is like, you know, my ex-girlfriend who broke up with me, she loved three things. Uh, one was hot Cheetos. One was Grant Cardone. Uh, and the other was she loved working out at the gym and eating Quest bars. Yeah. So I made it my mission to go from zero and not having any clue or any connections or any followers or anything to track down and, and uh, book in-person interviews uh, with Grant Cardone, the creator of Hot Cheetos, and the billion-dollar creator of Quest Nutrition. And uh, the first year, I got all three. 
And all three, with no experience, ended up being all the most watched and downloaded interviews in the world on YouTube and all podcast platforms worldwide. <laughs> so I had a lot of fire that drove me far beyond um, SEO or analytics or building a brand in the beginning. It was just yeah. pure... Um, I wanted to prove her wrong. Like, oh, you don't want my time? I'll show you who wants my time. So it's kind of a combination of where yeah. I was at and just that's how the ball started rolling. So uh, I want to go back to that when you made the decision. You yeah. made a decision saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my hand at this show. Was it a, that's what I want to know. Was it a try? I'm going to go try to see if someone says yes. Uh-huh. And if they don't, I'll go get other guests. Or was it a, I know what I'm going to do. This is the show that I want. This is how, this is the platform it's going to be. This is what it's going to be called. How yeah. did, was there a try and let's see if I'm going to make it or was there, a, I'm going to make it and this is what's going to happen. Um, it was divinely inspired, I really believe. Um, and I think the best way to language it was, I was for sure that I was going to do it but I had to try to find the way to do it, but I knew I was going to do it. It's weird. Um, and, and it's funny because even now, you know, sometimes in business I'll call like, you know, fortunately maybe it's, maybe it's a, it's a, it's a double edged sword, but I have a lot of people I can call on for advice. And sometimes I find in my, uh, in my journey that it, it's actually, sometimes it's important to like take your own advice, you know? Yeah. Um, because because although a lot of people mean well, they're not in your head, they're not in your, your feeling. And so, you know, and I know this guy who's worth a hundred million, this guy's worth a billion and everyone's telling me different stuff. Um, and although they mean well, like sometimes it's just, you could be lost in your own sauce, you know, and it's, sure. and it's, people can give you strategy, but they can't give you the, the intuition of yourself. And so at the time, as I reflect, it's interesting because when I started the show, I, I just had absolute clarity of mind that I was going to do it. And I, and I remember even like people saying, oh, what if it doesn't work? And I was like, well, I'm going to do it until it does. Like there was no, yeah. it wasn't like I'm going to try it. It's not, it wasn't like a business venture. Like, ah, um, you know, I'll try it for a couple of months, see how it goes. It was like, no, no, no I'm going to, I'm going to like stick with it until it works. I was, it was just so weird. But I, I think it was because I had tried so many things and I had so many failures and so many things that didn't go right that I swore to the ends of the universe that I was going to make this work. And I firmly believe that even if we didn't end up getting millions of views and downloads and all that, I still would have done it. I love to do it. And I never, like, I never asked someone like, Hey, do you think, um, do you think I should do a show interview? I never asked anybody. I just did it. And I didn't know how to do it. So as I reflect, it's almost like I don't even recognize who that dude was because he was just so certain. And it was just, let me try one. Let me get another, let me get another. And then Once people, you know, I did it for me selfishly, you know, we were talking prior about like doing a show that you would enjoy and the audience will naturally, you know, it'll naturally rub off on the audience. But I just did a show that I would enjoy asking questions that I would enjoy. And what do you know, a couple million people uh, like it just as much as I do. So once I, once I got that feedback, that became that confirmation that like, ah, yes, like, okay, people like it. And that got me even more addicted. And then the names just got bigger and bigger. The opportunities just got bigger and bigger. And so I just became this, this, this addiction to, to do what I love to do and help people simultaneously. And it fed the business. So it just, it hit on so many values in one simultaneous shot. And then I had the team with me, like literally everything I wrote down on this little manifestation guide, uh, this little prophecy paper, uh, ended up popping out into reality, man. And it's crazy. It's, it's, um, I think it was just, in short, 
um, it was just a decision, man. It was just a like, I'm tired of losing and I'm going to fucking win this thing. Part of my <laughs> right? no, yeah. It was just like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose on this one. I don't care if I get one listen or one view or whatever. I still trip out Sharon. I still very much associate with what it's like to see, you know, when someone looks at other YouTubers and stuff or podcasters and they go, damn, how do they get that many people? Like, I still very much feel like, why would one person listen? Now I have people that are like, dude, I've listened to every single Everything, episode yeah. multiple times. You know, my girlfriend and I, you know, so like I've had so many people enjoy it. So it's sort of fed my belief. Like, oh, I guess people like it, you know, so it just keeps you. Uh, keeps you going on it. But yeah, the beginning was just blind faith and delusional optimism. And like you told me one time, it was the passion behind the passionate few yeah. more so than it was the passionate few. So, yeah, yeah, dude, that's so good. So so let's, let's uh, you talked about these prophecy papers. Um, I want to try to mechanically help people right now. Folks that have an idea, yeah. they're thinking, okay, I have this idea some folks tell, well, you have, you don't, do you write this 30 page business plan? Do you just go try something right away? Do you yeah. do your first episode? Do you create a logo? What, yeah. like, you know, there's so many pieces to this puzzle to yeah. actually have this come to life. Yeah. And you, um, you know, I, I, I always tell my the CEOs that I mentor this, I said, nothing great ever happened without it being written down. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, starts with the constitution, right? Like nothing great ever happened without it being written down. Right. And however you write it is different, but I think there is a manifestation that happens when you write stuff down, mm-hmm. just maybe at a very high level, what was the level of either manifesting or planning, uh, mechanically speaking before you launched the show? Oh, very, very, very crystal clear. Um, and my coach shout out to Dave Thorpe. He's out in Laguna beach. Um, Dave told, I'll never forget it, man, because I, there, I met him at a Starbucks and I have tears running down my face. I'm in my mid twenties. So I'm already starting to feel like, damn, everyone else is, you know, at the time to me, you know, making 70 grand a year, hundred grand a year was Amazing. out of this universe. So when I had friends out of college, I went to college, I graduated college, but I always wanted to do something more fulfilling. And there just didn't seem to be any positions that you know spoke to me. And I looked, man, I looked. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I was in my mid twenties, I'm seeing everybody else create opportunities, you know, and I went to an engineering school, Cal Poly and didn't yeah. study engineering. My dad's an engineer. So I let the family down by studying business. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm just feeling the walls caving in. And, uh, like I, I went to the Starbucks, I met Dave. I only had a couple hundred bucks to my name. And that was my first time emptying a bank account to hire a coach. <laughs> uh, because I realized, I remember even thinking like, okay, well, I'm going to go broke anyways, you know? So I'm like, I'm either going to go broke on like Costco hot dogs and gas and like pizza <laughs> or over leverage myself with the coach. So I'm like, all right, let's screw it. I'm going to debt anyways. Might as well get some wisdom out of it. So I did my bank account, paid him. And, um, and he had me on paper, write down, um, what would happen if life was perfect. And I thought, wow, like that's really profound for me because how often Sean do people in life give you permission to ask yourself, hey, what would happen if life was perfect? Yeah. I think all of us subconsciously assume that we, you know, we can aim for ideals, but like subconsciously we're like, ah, I'll never really hit it. You know, it's just kind of an ideal. Um, you know, but then, you know, there's people like you who are like, I'm gonna tell it, I'm gonna 10x to less to three billion, and then you do it, right? Uh, but when you're younger and you don't have reference of your own wins, you kind of have to, you know, pump up that belief by experience by getting experiences that are, you know, that represent and feed that. So 
Um, at the time, I had I had a few wins, but I nothing really uh, too compelling that built my confidence. And so he told me, write down if life was perfect, what would happen next? And in whatever level of detail you understand, and then we'll get clearer and clearer. So that was the first thing. I think most people, they don't have the whole thing perfectly in their mind, so they don't write it down. Yeah. What he told me to do was like write it down and like uh, sort of um, you mold it and you'll like etch a sketch it to yeah. reality on paper. You, you work it on paper. You'll get clear. You know, you sort of chisel it on paper, so to speak. Right. You're like going to massage it to clarity. It's not just going to come out and you're done. And literally, literally, I literally think little stuff like that, little distinctions like that are what end up making people take the steps of momentum to make things happen versus, ah, I'll write it tomorrow. Yeah. Like it's those things that separate people more than the hard work and dedication, da, da, da. That stuff comes into play once in your momentum, but most people never get into momentum at all. Yeah. So, so what he had me do is write down very specific, you know, so I, I remember very, very distinctly, he said, and right in the present tense. So I see myself producing 10 episodes of inspiring content featuring amazing people to be released on YouTube once a week at 12 p.m. on Monday, documenting incredible stories with men and women that I would love to document, paying less than, you know, th- paying up to three to 400 or whatever uh, per edit. Um, Dude, that's so specific. That's yeah, awesome. Like, yeah, so he had me write down that, and then we were like, okay. And then it was like, who do you want to interview? And then I started writing down my Tony Robbins, Jordan Belfort, Grant Cardone, Hot Cheetos, blah, blah, blah. and it's funny, dude, because I still have a list. I wish I had, I still have the notebook, but I wish I had it on me right now. I'll send you a photo perhaps uh, after, but I, I do have it somewhere here in my in my uh, in my office. But um, and I and I just wrote down all these names. It was just funny because later, and and those tears, but I'm sorry, those pages, by the way, Sean still have dry water spots from the tears when I was writing it. So it's so very nostalgic for me to, to see that. But, um, but yeah, man, so I wrote on very specifically, he said, you know, who would you work with? Um, what times of day? And he even said, like, I'll never forget it. He goes, what day does episode one drop? And I remember that being the biggest catalyst to me actually starting. Um, and I tell all, all the you know, students, we have like a, a YouTube and podcast course. It's like, so many people are like, Oh, what do I do? What do I do? I tell them like, pick a date to launch and that will pressure everything else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, pick a date, like, okay, June 1st, uh, at 12 PM, we go live on YouTube with a thumbnail, a video and a full length interview and the audio podcast stripped, uh, to be downloaded at that same exact time. Okay. Boom. Now your brain has a target. Okay. So now we have a logo. By default, the logo has to have a deadline because we have to have it ready for that. I have to book interviews. I have to create the video. I have to record the audio. Now you have to. Right. If, you, if you just leave it in, in, uh, in space, you'll never, June 1st, turn into July 1st and August. Right. <laughs> I'll get to it next year and then nothing ever happens. So, so it's almost like I find that writing stuff down, it pressures you to actually do it. The other thing is a logo. I, I find anytime I have a business idea, my graphic designer will tell you this. We have so many, we have dozens of logos for companies that are or ventures or side projects that never happened. Um, because as soon as I get an inspired vision for like a name, instantly I buy the domain and I'll call him to make a logo. And believe it or not, I, maybe I'm a weirdo, but like when I see a logo, like I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like excited about that. Me too. Yeah. yeah so so that now it's real. Now, now it's not just a thought in my head and now it sort of pressures me. So I find that I think to answer your question in short, I think it's important to know your nature. Yeah. Some people are very organized. Some people are very um, driven by pressure. 
Some people are self-motivated, right? They're good at um, internally manipulating their own pressure. But for me, I'm the type of guy who I, I know my nature. I'm good at, if I can get the things around the thing to pressure me to do the thing, like if I set dates for an interview, I'm locked into it. If I tell my team, hey, we're launching on this date, that pressures me to get it done by that date. So, so I think knowing your nature and creating the circumstances and specificity around it, the pressure you to get things done. So in three practical steps, pick a deadline to launch of a day and time specifically. Number two, make a logo. And number three, um, tell people about it. Tell your audience about it. Because if you do that, if you hype it up, if you tell your email list, your followers this day, now it creates pressure. Now you have to deliver. And it's usually not that hard to launch. Yeah. So it's, it, it's enough pressure and flexibility to make sure you follow through with some accountability. Um, I think that's very important. Believe it or not, I, you know, I probably procrastinated on doing the show for a year before that. It, it's so great. I, there's a, the baseline of all that you said, which I was hoping that you would hit on, which you did, is you know, people always tell me fortune favors the brave. And I'm like, no, fortune favors the specific. Yes. Right. It's the, spe- the specificity is everything. So it's the, okay, how many, by when, by, uh, you know, when are you going to, that as soon as you put those in, the brain becomes like this heat seeker missile, right? Like essentially it knows exactly what it needs to do. Yeah. And for the, I think the hardest part is actually coming up with the specificity. Once you come up, it actually instantly sets you free. And, yeah. and it, so the, the, it's all the pent up fear of actually creating the specificity is the, is the hard part. Um, here's, here's, here's where I want to go with this. And I think that you have masterfully done something which, um, which people want to oh, incrementally get to, you know, in you interview Jason Capital, one of our very, very good friends. And he told me about this concept of, he says, everybody wants to go from 5k a month to 8k a month. 8K a month to 10K a month yeah. or, uh, you know, losing one pound a week to losing three pounds a week to losing five. There's all this incremental stuff that we've been, been taught about saying the compound effect and all of that. Mm-hmm. And what he told me was, Hey, it's not about, you know, how to increase. It's about how to replace. He's like, how can I take 1K a month and make it 10K a month? How can mm-hmm. I make 10K a month and make it hundred K a month? So what, that specificity instantly says, oh, I'm not going from 10 to 20. I'm going from 10 to 100. I have to completely reorient my world. Mm-hmm. And what I want to tell, like what you did was you essentially said, hey, this is my, my goal list of people that I want to get on so they can inspire the rest. So right. my question is, like, how do you decide mm-hmm. who you want on the show? Uh, yeah, it's funny. People ask me that all the time. They're like, dude, where do you find these people? <laughs> you know, like, I, um, to me, you know, I, I don't really have a formula. And, and unfortunately, sometimes we even have to tell people no, because there's people who have large followings that make a ton of money that are just not congruent or on brand for me. Um, it's nothing personal. It's just, you know, I know the message I, I want to tell. Uh, but for me, it, I, for me, it's an intuitive thing. You know, it, it's, um, I just find people and, and from the very beginning, it always has been, you know, my first guest was a guy I met at a gas station who was like 30 and had a Ferrari. And I went up to him. His name's Cliff Braun. This is before we introduced video to the mix. Just to give, just to, I'm just trying to illustrate how intuitive it is, yeah. is, um, you know, my first guest ever was a guy, a guy by the name of Cliff Braun, great guy. And uh, I, he was like, he looked like he was in his thirties, just looked young and happy. And he had a red Ferrari. And to me, I love red Ferraris. And, I, and I've always been the type of kid who like, when I would go to car shows, I was always that annoying kid. Like, 
you know, excuse me, mister, you know, what are you, you know, scratching my head. Like I'd have my parents drop me off at car shows and I'd walk around by myself at 10, 11 and 12 and look at Ferraris and Lamborghinis and but you know, excuse me, sir, you know, what do you do for a living? And I'd ask his wife like, Hey, you know, what, what does your husband do that makes him successful? I was always that little kid who was like trying to figure out how to, how do I get there? How do I like, how do I make the leap to that? You know? And cause no, like mom and dad don't have that. Nobody close to us has that. But like, you know, Timmy up the street has that, but like, what did he, like we're yeah. made of the same skin and bones. How, how come? What's the difference? I don't get it. Um, so as a kid, I had that, that muscle where I didn't, I didn't care who somebody status didn't, uh, if anything, it compelled me to want to communicate yeah, it didn't better. You or anything, yeah. It didn't intimidate me. Correct. I think a lot of people are like, Oh my God, how do you go up to these people? Cause they see them through like the facade of like, Oh, you know? Yeah. Um, but no, on the contrary, I feel like my communication skills were sharpened because I realized I started hanging out in those circles. Um, and just, you know, you let by default, you know, proximity is power. You, you level up. So that motivated me to build my communication skills to always be in good rapport with people doing awesome stuff. So long story short, you know, by the time I was older, I had already had that muscle. Plus, keep in mind, I was knocking on doors selling solar. When you knock on someone's doors yeah. in, in the middle in the middle of summer, in the hot heat with your armpit sweating on 100% commission, yeah. to people who don't like you, don't want you there, and you're selling $30,000 solar panels on their doorstep in the middle of the day when they don't want you there, you build a little resilience. <laughs> <laughs> you build a little a little muscle to, um, to deal with rejection and so subconsciously, it's interesting because, you know, in retrospect, I think that and then working that that was the first like real muscle of sales. Uh, and I was really good. I was the top. I have always been the top at sales just because I don't know. I think it's just good communication skills. And I read a lot. And so it made me very versatile and quick, able to relate to people. Um, and uh, and then the second part of my journey was working at Tesla. The types of people that buy Tesla's are, you know, usually affluent, um, usually thoughtful people, mindful people, you know, you're so between the back to back experience of knocking on the hot heat and selling, which built my confidence to talk to anybody, plus people at Tesla come to us. So affluent people actually liking you. <laughs> you know, I went from chasing people, <laughs> you know, like $30,000 solar things to people chasing us to buy $100,000, $200,000 vehicles. So that duality back to back, right before I started the show, I think just built this perfect muscle of like resilience, but also ability to talk to people. And, and so that subconsciously, I started meeting people like I met Bill Clinton's Air Force One pilot came in and bought a Tesla from me. I started meeting um, big time, you know, business people and big time uh, investors. And I just started meeting all these people. And that kept like poking me and poking me and poking me and, like, and it just fed that thing even more. And I was like, man, I would love to tell these stories. Like I'm meeting, you know, I'm in a car, I'm in a Tesla, giving him a test drive. And he's telling me about what Bill Clinton was like on Air Force One. I'm like, oh my so God, cool. this is That's a podcast. Like, yeah. This is, I, I want the world, I would have so many interesting conversations. So that kind of built the pressure up of uh, me wanting to like tell stories and tell stories. So when I quit Tesla, I was absolutely certain what I wanted to do. I, no reason to do so. Um, but those things combined, I had already, you know, the confidence of wanting to do something big, the muscle of talking to big people. And now coming off Tesla, I already got really comfortable talking to affluent people. So my first guest was that guy at a gas station in a Ferrari. My next guest was Tom Bilyeu, you know, <laughs> and then the next one was like the creator of Hot Cheetos. And then the next one was Grant. And then I, and then I did more and more people. So I, from the beginning, 
just went big. And I, and I, and I, and I got this from, and I'll never forget this. In 2014, I went to, um, the, the largest Ferrari collector in North America happens to actually live by me, which is funny because I love Ferrari. I'm a huge Ferrari obsessive person, not for the ego or what people think. I don't even care about that. Just, I appreciate the level of detail. They're the only yeah. car manufacturer to date that uses real leather. A lot of cool things I appreciate about the, 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 the art of Ferrari, but, um, the largest Ferrari collector in North America actually uh, lives by me. And so, um, a couple years ago, I, uh, I had run into him before I knew about this. And, uh, I remember like I was, I was talking to him about a story, you know, I've always been, I've always been doing podcasts. I just didn't record them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just get to hear them now, you know, Sean. So, so I asked him one time, so he has, um, he has a, a, a jewelry, like a, like a luxury jewelry. He's like, he's got this like huge jewelry empire. And so he told me that when he started, he was totally broke. And he told me always go for the big ones first, because if you get the big thing, then it's easy to do everything else. So for example, he started a watch store and to get the, to get the, the license to sell Rolex is like the hardest thing in jewelry, right? I think in, in the U S like only 20 people have it like very, so yeah. like he was this random broke kid. So he told me that he went into debt on credit cards and, uh, and before totally broke. No, he was trying to start the jewelry store, but he knew he was like, man, if I could get the license for Rolex, I'll get the license for Omega and Citizen and all these other yeah, yeah. watch brands. Uh, and everybody, he goes, there's two ways of thinking. And uh, this will serve your audience and speaks to your point directly. He said the, the, the first way of thinking, which most people do and never quite get there or climb, is I'm going to do this one and then a bigger one. Yeah, the incremental. A bigger yeah. one, you know. And then, and then he said the other way is called the leapfrog theory. Meaning you go for the big one first, you get that. And by default, all the other dominoes fall. Yeah. You know, some people would say, you know, it's with, you know, say you're a man and women, you know, you could, you could be with a six and then a seven an eight or nine and a 10, your, your definition of whatever that means. Right. Uh, or you can go straight for the 10 and then the six, seven, eight, nine will be like, dang, the 10 is with you. We like you too. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, in, 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 uh, in, in this context though, what he told me was he flew, maxed out his credit cards, flew to... I, I, I'm not, I don't remember if it was Switzerland. I believe it was Switzerland. Went to a show, went outside, um, the CEO of Rolex's office, um, waited outside. Uh, it only had enough money for four days in a hotel, got four days, assumed he would be rejected a couple times. Uh, went to the trade show, tried to talk to him, got the card for him, went to the office, waited outside. Um, when he went in, the receptionist said, you know, I'm sorry, you have to have an appointment. Otherwise we can't guarantee you having a meeting with him, but you know, Thank you. So he said, okay, no problem. I'll wait any time he has. No problem. I don't want to be competitional at all. I just, it's, it's really urgent that I speak with him about a project I'm working on in California. So he said, okay. So first day, day ends. He's there six hours, nothing, leaves. Second day, there's six hours, nothing, leaves. Third day, six hours, nothing, leaves. Fourth day, six hours, nothing, leaves. Flies back. Didn't get, didn't get the meeting. Flies back. Two months later, flies back again, does the same thing. Except now he knows the office. There's no need for the convention. Goes back three days, same thing, nothing. Boom, flies back. Third wow. time, third wow. time. This is maxing out credit cards. Third time, flies back, does it. On the third, on the third day, um, two hours before his flight, he tried one more time on the last day. He said I could either go to the airport or try one last time. On the last day... He goes back and uh, the guy said, I have uh, five minutes. And he said, perfect. I only need four. 
So he said, okay. And he, he started a, a, a timer, like stopwatch, and gave him the ultimate pitch of the century in two minutes. And, uh, and so the guy, the, the, the head of Rolex said, um, said, okay, you know, I appreciate you coming down. I appreciate your persistence, but you know, we typically only work with these types of retailers and this, that, 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 that the other. And he had already spent all this time yeah. planning how to get over every objection. You know, I understand, but this, and then it was California. It's a new territory. We could do, we could do it on trial basis. We can do it on consignment. Like he would just worked out every possible scenario. So the guy said, okay, cool. Let me think about it. He flew back. Um, and he said within seven days, he got a letter in the mail saying that they had been approved for the license of Rolex. So good. And within 90 days, got every single, leveraging that, the Rolex license, got every single, didn't get a single no from having the license to sell any other watch. And what would take normal jewelry watch, you know, uh, business owners, uh, you know, decade, you know, to win the Rolex uh, license, that's a, a, a tremendous amount yeah. of work. Have so much credibility, X volume of sales. This guy did it cold from scratch. Just, but, but they appreciated his initiative to do yeah. that. And so he told me that in 2014. And I remember I, that never left my mind. So guess what? When it came to do interviews, yeah. I modeled that exactly. Yeah. You know, I drove two hours to Grant Cardone when he was in, you know, he lives in Florida. I live in LA. So when I saw that Grant was in LA on his Insta stories and they went to, I forget the restaurant. I don't know if it's Ruth's Chris in Beverly Hills or something like that. So I, I went and I saw that they were first at Equinox. So I went on the phone and chased them to Equinox and then they left Equinox. So I was like, damn, I drove two hours back from Beverly Hills. I mean, you know, anything OC to <laughs> Beverly yeah. Hills traffic. I mean, yeah. anything, you know, Instantly, yeah, anything like, is two hours. Yeah, yeah. Everything doubles too. Like, so yeah. if it's two hours from LA to LA is two hours. <laughs> you know? uh, so, so, you know, so I drove like crazy waited outside. And in my mind, I remember thinking like, damn, this is the Rolex. Cause if I yeah. get rent and get everything and uh, that's what happened, man. So I adopted that. So, so I, that speaks to your point though, about the leapfrog theory. I yeah. like if you, if you, the assumption that there are an infinite amount of steps sometimes is, is just, um, Sometimes it's sometimes it'll help you to do that. I, I wouldn't recommend you you just swing big from the beginning, but I, but I, I do recommend everybody every once in a while to try, try, try it, try a big one. You never know, and it makes life a hell of a lot easier when you get a big one. You know, yeah. if I would have been working my way up, I still would have been working my way up now. Yeah, it's like boom, get the big one, and especially. And here's the thing I want people to know, um, especially nowadays with social media everybody wants content. Everybody yeah. wants access. You never know. I mean, Sharon, how many CEOs do you know that are worth way more than anybody on social media yeah. that if you hit them up for an interview, they'd be like, Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Like they don't even understand fully yeah. they check how many followers you have or how many subscribers you have. Or yeah. I had one of my, check this out. I had one of my, um, one of my students who is actually uh, an Uber driver who started a podcast like this guy was committed. And he actually bumped into, um, to, uh, Stephen Kirk. Yeah. He was like the coach of the, the, coach uh, of the Warriors, Golden State Warriors, yeah. and said, "Hey, I have a podcast. All this," and he was like, "Sure." And he gave him an interview just like that <laughs> in person, in person at his house. Oh you know? my god! That's so, awesome. so, you ne- so you never know. For ex- that's just that. But I mean, in business, the same thing is like go for the big client. I mean, try every once in a while, and when you do that, uh, you never know what can happen. Instead of this assumption that you have to work your way up, yeah, um, that could be it to a degree, but. Every once in a while, swing for the fences. I think anybody who does something great does that. They, they do something a little bit different than everybody else. So it's so funny. Um, I got to tell you the story and I think make it relatable. I was, in, I was in business school getting my MBA and I really wanted to work on Wall Street in finance. 
And um, I, I had zero finance experience. I, I, I couldn't tell you the difference between a stock and a bond. I knew nothing, yeah. nothing whatsoever. And here were these other guys saying, hey, the Wall Street internships, the Wall Street jobs out of business school are the hardest to get. That's the, the blue chip job to get. And so, and I said, well, what would be, okay, I want to work at a, they call them the bulge bracket bags. I want to work with one of the big six. And so uh, one of the alums told me, hey, the way to get a job is first to get an interview. <laughs> I was like, okay, g- good. Awesome. And I said, well, how do I get the interviews? He's like, it's very simple. If you get a Goldman Sachs interview, you can tell everyone else uh, that, hey, Omar, I'm actually coming up to New York tomorrow to meet with Goldman. Uh, I'll stay for in a few more days if I can meet with you. And I said, really, you can do that? He's like, you can do that if you get the Goldman Sachs interview. So I said, okay, well, I have two years of business school. I'm going to drop almost all my classes my first year, take the bare minimum, because if I don't make it my first year, I'm screwed my second year anyway. Mm-hmm. So I had the, the, you know, the lightest possible load. And all I did my entire job was to get a Goldman Sachs interview, just an interview. I didn't even care what else. So I, Omar, I jammed the phones. I jammed the alumni network. I jammed everything. And yeah. all I wanted was a Goldman Sachs interview. I didn't even want anything else. Yeah. And then I was like, and then as soon as I got one, I parlayed that into Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, Lehman Brothers. Like I had an interview with everybody else because I got the Goldman interview. And once you get the Goldman interview, just like you said, once you get, you know, the Rolex, you can get everything else. And no one ever taught me that. And now I know that once I get that, you, you can't throw it in their face, but you can say, hey, I'm up there meeting with Goldman. I'd love to meet with you as well. And, you know, talk to you about whether it's a good fit. And they're like, oh, he's already meeting with Goldman. Goldman's already pre-vetted them. Yes. Him. And so it was, it was insane that, that that had happened. And it's so funny. I believe that just like you said, that Rolex story meant so much to you. The Goldman story meant so much to me. I believe that every entrepreneur has something like that, 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 you know, kind of that connected with them about the star and then how, you know, everything downstream naturally starts to happen. So if you don't, yeah. if you're listening right now, and if one of those stories doesn't mean something to you, you've got to have something that means something to you because you're going to be in a situation where like, ah, that's Omar's Rolex story or that's Sharon's Goldman story. And that'll really inspire you. Right. Dude. I love that. I, I want to ask you real quick. I know usually, usually yeah. I ask questions. So this is just my nature taking over, but what, how did, how did you get the interview? What ended up being the, the mechanics of how that first interview for, for uh, Goldman was set up? So I, uh, very simple. I went to LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. I typed in Goldman Sachs and I looked at everybody that either had first or second degree connections. Yeah. I made a list. And I tried to take, and everybody in my first, everybody, I just invited everybody for coffee. And just to catch up, hey, I want some career advice, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm like, hey, I'm really looking at Goldman. Oh, do you know anybody at Goldman? Of course they knew someone at Goldman. I was like, hey, I'm not looking for anything. I just want to see if it's the right fit. Can I reach out to them on your behalf? Or can I write an email that you can forward to them? I don't want the job. I just want to talk to somebody who can give me some insight. Yeah. And I just wrote a very soft email. A bunch of people forwarded it in. People at Goldman told me that they have never gotten more emails about me than anyone else because everybody forwarded my emails into Goldman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you wanted the social proof to touch it so that it had some Exactly proof. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's true. So, and when you do that, people blindly trust, you know, people. Totally. Sort of, yeah, it's just easy. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that you just said to me was so fun when you said, I've been doing podcasts all my life. I just started recording them. It's true. It's true. Even, even, uh, it's so funny. Cause even in my household, my, my parents were, uh, my parents are great people, but not so much into personal development and like, you know, things like that. Um, 
And it's funny because as a kid, I would always get in trouble because as soon as I meet someone, I'm like, where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? How did you find that job? What did, you know, since I was a kid, I've been like that. And so it's funny now because, um, you know, I, I feel good. I feel, I feel like the 12 year old me would be happy that I turned, uh, what a lot of people thought was a nuisance into a pretty, pretty awesome career and we're, you know, we're doing good work in people's lives. So, uh, part of me feels really good about that, that I took my nature and was able to uh, find a healthier vehicle for it. Find, find an audience for it, really. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people are brilliant. And they have, you know, I often think, you know, what would have happened if I didn't start the show? Who knows? Right. I don't, to be honest, I don't know if I would have been in a happy place. I mean, ideally, I would love to say I would be, but I don't know. I'm sure I would have done something else, but I can't imagine it being a fraction as fulfilling as what I do now. I mean, I mean, dude, I mean, I, I, I get to, no matter what's going on in my life or my business with people, I'm living in an intellectual kid's candy store, man. Yeah. I get to, hey, why don't we connect with, for example, I'm a skateboarder. So we're putting together an interview with Tony Hawk because he's promoting a, his new video game. And I'm like, damn, like I'm about to sit down with Tony How Hawk, is which that, to man? me would have been a dream years ago. If you would have told me years ago, Tony Hawk would be on my show. I would have, this is why I love technology. I mean, think about what YouTube and podcasts has created for people, a free platform that gives you an excuse to connect with amazing people and yeah. build audience and business. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, I love technology. I think what it's, what it's created in the world is in a lot of ways, beautiful and obviously in other ways dangerous, but uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing thing overall, man. Like think about that. Like Tony Hawk, like what the hell? Yeah. Like, that doesn't make any sense, you know, but, but it's uh, it's crazy, man. When you when you when you take action on things, even when you don't necessarily know what you're doing, like you mentioned with Goldman, uh, you just find these little opportunities. Boom! You get one. The momentum will build and build and build. And by the way, that one thing. And this is what I always tell people. I think a lot of people are afraid to take actions that they don't perceive to have an ROI. Um, and and I think that like the way I think of it is kind of like a flurry of actions will have an ROI. You know, yeah. like like for example, if I hit up say, well, now it's different, but in the beginning when I would try to get interviewed, say I hit up 30 people for an interview, I know in my head I'm going to get 28 rejections. Right. I know that. And I, I mean, it's not a big deal. I'm not, but most people won't send one message if that one is iffy. Right. You know, but the ROI happen, only can happen in batches. And if you look at it action per return, you're not always going to get that. You have to think of it like bulk action. You know, what's the return on the bulk action? Uh, so, so I think that those things combined allowed, uh, momentum to build. And I think most people don't do that. I think yeah. most people are afraid to get rejections though. They won't send out 10 messages knowing they're only going to get one. They rather, oh, I'll just get to it later. Or let me buy a different camera or, <laughs> you know, they just get distracted with that. They major in the minor things and never really quite get anywhere. And I've been there before, so I get it. So there's one thing you said to me as a very tactical idea when you were advising one of your uh, podcast students and you said, Hey, he asked you, how do I get big personalities on my show when I've not even launched my show? And oh, yeah. you talked about your post-production thing. I'd love for you to talk about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, where did you hear that? I don't, I don't remember. Was it, um, you told me it was, it was when you were advising, it was either on a show or you were advising a client about it. Yeah. Yeah. In my, um, so in my group coaching, uh, in my group coaching program, I, what I love about it is like people will throw me questions like, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? So we do like a Q&A round on uh, Thursdays. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, so that particular night, people were, people, like a few of them were, were bringing up a great point. Uh, and this is why I made a whole module on this on the course, a whole section of the module on the course, is um, a lot of it is how you frame things. Um, 
And I think a big part of, you know, if life was perfect, I would love to create a communication course, uh, which I find is every variation of a course is a communication course. So because right. you're teaching yeah. how to communicate to get to results. Um, but my obsession is human communication, not, not because I believe uh, it's manipulative, although it can be, uh, but, but because I believe there's a tremendous amount of power in, in precise communication. I'll give you an example, and it speaks to the question is, um, for example, they were saying, well, you know, what happens if we want to interview a big name? And, uh, you know, when we pitch them for an interview, they say, well, you know, how big is your audience? Or, um, or how many, uh, you know, how many downloads do you get a month? Or who else have you had, right? Like those types of questions sort of expose your naked, unborn YouTube and podcast show or whatever, right? Or business venture, if you're looking for it, <clears throat> whatever it is. And, um, you know, I thought about it and I said, you know, I would just tell the truth, but I'd be really strategic about how I tell the truth. Right. So, you know, so instead of, so a lot of it is how you present, right. Because how you present affects the next question. So, so for example, instead of saying, you know, hi, Mr. Sharon, you know, I'm a big fan of what you do. I'm looking to start a podcast. Can I have you on? Which if you do that, what's the first thing Sharon would think? He goes, who is this? Uh, like, who are you? Where would this go? How long is the podcast? How many people listen? What's in it for me? Uh, like, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of questions your mind goes through before you're like, especially at scale with all the messages you get, there's no yeah. way you're going to be saying yeah to something like that. Right. Right. So, so what I tell people is like to communicate strategically and put yourself in their shoes. Right. So answer all their questions. So there's nothing left, but the date and time. Right. The interview. So, and you Dude, want to say, say that again, that was so good. Yeah, so so I tell them to answer every question in the context of the the outreach uh, as, as concise as possible, so that there's no questions left for them other than the date and time they want to do it. So good, uh, you know. So for example, well, for example, like a Manny Koshman, when I emailed him, I spent two hours on that email crafting and perfecting it and moving this. Oh, it's too much. Can I say more thorough? What about this? How he think of it? Then I take a break and then I look at it and I imagine I'm him, not really paying attention, skimming it. Is it clear? And so I learned little distinctions. I learned, for example, in messages to always end with a question. Because a lot of times people could read an email, like kind of skim it, not yeah. the hell going on. And no matter, because people assume when they write the email that someone is reading it and has thoughtful and present <laughs> mind when they're writing it. That's not yeah. the case, especially nowadays. People have a lot of stuff going on, they skim it. And if you hook them in the first paragraph, then they'll be more you know, present or whatever. You got to earn the attention. You don't just have it by default. And that informs micro tweaks and pivots in the, in the, in the, in the copy. So, so for example, what I tell people is say, Hey, you know, um, you know, we're just launching a show with, you know, awesome seven, eight, nine figure entrepreneurs, uh, on their, you know, incredible journeys to go from this to that, da, 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 da. would love to have you in the lineup when we launch. I think your story would be a great fit. Plus we can help promote your book because uh, your episode would air, you know, right on time with that. That's a very different message yeah. uh, than Hey, Sharon, oh my God, I'm a big fan of what you did. I love all your stuff on YouTube. I would love to interview on my podcast. Can we set this up? Right? <laughs> like, that's what most people do. They, they give a flurry of things. But when you give context, and the formula I tell people is, um, number one, compliment uh, on a specific thing. Hey, I loved your post here. I love this video where you talked about this, right? Because when you're specific, it's very hard when someone says, hey, Omar, I loved your interview with Sharon, especially at minute 37, when Sharon talked about his raccoon story yeah. and how he was that low. When someone says that, boom, I have to respond because it right. was so, they put in so much specificity. Specific, yeah. As opposed to like, hey, Omar, I love your interviews. Can I interview you? Very different than, yeah. hey, Omar, I loved your interviews where this happened. And I was wondering, same thing with, um, I taught one of, my, one of our students um, has like this company and he's been getting investors. 
So he used that and he was saying like, hey, you know, I read this article on you in the Wall Street Journal and I was fascinated that you said that um, every morning when you get up, da, da, da. And they go, and the, so the guy wrote back, oh, well, thanks. And then that started up a conversation right. that the $2 million investment in their, in their business, right? So a lot of times it's little particular things like showing that you went that extra distance and not that you're communicating generically. And if you can do that, that that's much more, uh, you will stimulate much more in their mind than just think about it. By default, everybody has a question. So if you're, if you're asked, if you're saying like, Hey, I have a podcast, I want to interview you or, Hey, I want to do business with you. And there's no context. Boom. Now their mind has a bunch of questions. Confused minds do nothing. Yeah. But if you say, you know, and then once you have a show, your communication would be, you know, you know, Hey, Sharon, quick question. I've interviewed a lot of your friends like, you know, Bedros and Craig and uh, Jason uh, and da 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 was wondering who the best person would be to talk to on your team to see if it'd be a good fit to schedule a one hour in-person interview where we come to you for the show. So now I'm doing multiple things. I'm complimenting you. I'm giving you context. I'm keeping you concise. And instead of the burden being on you, Sharon, I say, hey, who's the best person to talk to on their team? And I don't know about you, Sharon, but there's nothing I love more than when someone talks to my sister instead of me. Totally. <laughs> right? What you, what you totally nailed there was, people don't realize this, right? If, if, if a piece of communication is coming to me, uh, it's coming to one of two people. It's either coming to me or it's coming to someone on my team. Right. And if it's coming to me, it better be thoughtful. If it's coming to someone on my team, it better be thoughtful because now they're going to say, would you like to be on my podcast? Would you like to be on my podcast? All that's secondary. And if there's something thoughtful, they're like, Sharon, you got to read this email. Like they actually filtered and forwarded. Now when I get a filtered and forward email, I'm even more receptive to doing that. We've got to get the human solution around this. And so when someone tells me, I have not thought through the copy, I'm not, like you're crazy because either... You either have to inspire the person you're reaching or their gatekeeper, especially their gatekeeper when they're, when yes. they're reaching it out. Yes. And, and, and the other thing I say is like move, move to the next step. You know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people get stuck on thinking that it's a yes and no game. That's the wrong way to think about it. It's a progress game, not a yes and no game. Yeah. Very big paradigm shift. So for example, when you're trying to get interviews, I don't, I don't look at it with all these big people like, um, like, a, like a, my goal is to ask them yes or no. I, I, I would bet you, let's say out of a hundred, you know, in-person interviews that I have asked, Hey, can I interview you with that verbiage less than 10 times? Yeah. Most of the time it was, you know, I was wondering who's the best point person on your team to talk to to see if this would be a good fit. Yeah. Do you, hey, what's your, what's the best number for an assistant or somebody on your team uh, who I can hop on the phone with and give context or yeah. right. So when you do that, dude, Oh yeah. Talk to Amanda. Here's her yeah, number. That's Here's it. Her email. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Cool. Deal with that. And then now when you get to the assistant, the assistant assumes, Oh, well, Omar wouldn't have told them about me. unless. <laughs> and so now it, and now it's subconscious, even if I didn't intend to do the podcast, but just by default, now my assistant will bring it. Hey, remember that kid who reached out about the thing and I'll go, uh, okay, fine. Or, you know, maybe I don't do it. Maybe I do do it, but now at least it's gone to the next step. It's made it past the filter. Right. If you do that, you're going to get a lot further than if you just, go black and white right there. Hey, can I interview you? Right. So yeah. So the strategic communication, if you don't have it right, bring up the objections in advance is, Hey, I have a show in post-production would love to interview you so that when it launches, uh, you know, your story can be part of the lineup. Plus we can promote your book. So now in their mind, they're not going, well, how many views or followers do you have? Right. Cause duh, by default, you're in post-production. You haven't launched yet. How can they, how can they hold you accountable for so that? Good. And that little extra effort of saying that, and it's true, you're not lying or being unethical. You're just being strategic. Um, it, by default, it's going to explain why there's no numbers as opposed to like, uh, well, I don't have any numbers. 
People follow your communicational lead. So you have to make sure you're leading them where you want to go, not on subjects that, you know, they're going to, well, how many views do you have? Where's it going to go? Is anybody going to watch this? Is it worth my time? How am I, right? So you got to answer the, you got to, in the great words of Craig Clemens, you got to enter the conversation in the mind and and sort of walk them to where you want to go as best as possible. Yeah. Let's fire up and end with something pretty cool, which you don't know about. So nice. Which is cool. Let's. I'd love to go back. I wrote. I. I've listened to almost. I think every one of your shows over over the last uh, couple of years, and uh, I picked out a few people. And I'm going to name the person, and I'd love for you to tell me either a thought or a highlight from the show. How's that? Oh wow, that's awesome, man! It's very fun. cool. All right, let's uh, let's fire it up. Um, cool. John Paul DeJoria. Ooh. Uh, systems, uh, John Paul DeJoria, uh, when I was in his office, the first thing that comes to mind, very particular, um, not in a bad way, but very, um, precise, uh, very particular. Uh, and, and when I say systems, uh, when we were setting up in his office and, and I would say in, in the, let's say 20 minutes, uh, we, we got in there, we had to set up fast cause he was on a pressure thing. So, so in 20 minutes, I, he probably had. 12 people come in with, um, oh, you know, hey, uh, what are we going to do about the ad? Or, hey, what about the budget? Hey, what about the prototype? Hey, don't forget we have the shoot. Don't forget you're traveling this, da, da, da. He had a lot of people coming into his office. And so I was watching the way he was handling it. And um, without a shadow of a doubt, everybody that came in, as soon as someone came in, all he would do is diagnose who has to handle it. So, so say an incoming thing comes in, he goes, yes, talk to Paul. Tell him he doesn't need to check in with me. I trust his decision on that. Uh, and then, okay, cool. So then she, so good. and then he'll come and then someone will say, well, Hey, what about this? Da, da, da. And he goes, he goes, yes. Uh, tell Sarah that needs to get done by three o'clock and I don't want to hear about it. I trust her decision with it. Boom. So his uniform by default was have people in place and trust their decisions, even if they're not ideal, because when you have that big of scale, you cannot micromanage every decision. You have to put people in place that you can trust blindly. But, but I remember very distinctly seeing that because when I see my friends who are overwhelmed running a, you know, a half a million dollar business or a million dollar business and they're doing all the work themselves, I, like, I'm like, hmm, that's very different than how the billionaire guy is handling it. And some people would say, well, duh, he's a billionaire. He could afford anybody. But I would say, no, that it's because he invested in putting people there that he became a billionaire because he yeah. built systems. So he's very much a systems guy. Uh, and that day, I mean, that's a, that's a microcosm of, I'm sure, the, the yeah. implementation of that. But I remember that day, you know, you notice when you, cause you know, in person interviews, you notice, especially in their office patterns of behavior, of action, of communication, of thought, of, you know, time, like the way they pace uh, their actions or their thoughts, the way they deal with their team. But yeah, with uh, John Paul, it was uh, systems. 12 people came in and 12 people got pointed to a point person who's responsible for making decisions and all those things very fast and very direct. He was a diagnoser. He wasn't a surgeon. That's so good. Um, Mr. Impact Theory. Tom Billy, surgical. He's a surgeon. He's a uh, surgeon. Very um, okay. I'm broke. I suck. I want to make a hundred million dollars. <laughs> what are vehicles that could do that? That looks like a good vehicle. That looks like a good vehicle, honey. What do you think? Okay, I don't know the right answer, but I'm going to decide on this. Let's take that step. We're going to do nutrition. Okay, how do we scale it? Let's look at other companies. What did they do well? What, what do we think we could do better? None of them are using social media. Okay, cool. Let's make it. He just, he's very, um, next step, next step, next step, next yeah. step. And he's not very, 
not not emotional, but I would say he's he's um yeah, I would say he's uh, unemotional in business in terms of resilience. He's an emotional guy, but he's very precise. He's very um kind of like a surgeon would be unemotional. He's just next step, next step, next step. Awesome. And also loves loves what he does with impact theory. The guy, yeah. the guy's a, a the guy's living it, man. He's yeah. living my dream. <laughs> um, Grant Cardone. Uh, fast, urgent. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's very urgent like that. Yeah. Uh, so he's like, uh, it, it's funny. He even told me one time. He's the type of guy who, you know, most people say say in the information space, right? You know, and I play in the information space as well. People will say, well, hey, you know, I want to create a course on X topic. And they go, okay, well, let me plan it. Let me do this, right? It takes a month and two months. All right, pretty soon a year goes by. You're still planning it. You know, maybe you launch, maybe you had a soft launch. Grant is the type of guy who will come up with a, with a course for $9.97 for a thousand bucks at 11 a.m. And um, within 48 hours, he sold $100,000 worth of that course. Yeah. Uh, pre-sold it before he even knows what's going on. Like Grant will think of an idea at 10 for, for a funnel or idea. Uh, by 2 p.m. that funnel was built. By 3 p.m. he's announcing it on social media, pre-selling it. Uh, and by, you know, by 8 a.m. the next day after he's made, you know, 50,000 already, you ask him, hey, what's in it? He goes, I'm not really sure. I'll figure it out. Amazing. I'll, I'll figure it out there. So he, his speed of implementation is very, very fast. He doesn't get lost in the details. Uh, which I think obviously some people may think is a fault, but no denying the guy was able to get somewhere where debatable yeah. on people's opinions, but very fat, very, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, speed. He's yeah. a speed guy. Mr. Mr. Hot Cheetos. He will tell you the luckiest son of a bitch in the world. <laughs> right time, right place, right idea, right guts. Uh, no, very humble, great guy. He's become a great friend. Probably he's one of the top five that I'm the closest with. He calls me out of the blue actually. And it's interesting because, you know, I meet a lot of amazing people and, and here's the pattern actually, Sean. Um, I found a lot of uh, wealthy folk are actually very lonely, not in the sense that they're depressed, but just in the sense that they're very like stick to their family and it's hard for them to trust people. So I think that when you build value, I think the reason I've built a lot of great friendships is because I've never like, um, I, I, I'm perceived as a giver, not a taker. And so I think like uh, he really took a liking to that, that I, that I not only did the interview with him and was so persistent about getting the interview and he, he gets a kick out of the fact that the ex-girlfriend liked, uh, you know, so on my side for the ex-girlfriend, it's like, ha, like, like you don't need to like, yeah, you love hot cheetos. Well, owner's on my side, you know? (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, so, so he gets a kick out of that, you know? And, uh, and not only that, but actually this is a fun fact. The, the interview I did with him, not only is it the most watched interview in the world with him, but actually uh, 20th Century Fox just signed a deal for a movie. They're doing a movie on his life story called um, Flamin' Hot. And uh, the, the screenwriters, um, the people writing the script and, 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 yeah. and going over the whole screenplay are actually using the interview I did with him uh, as a basis to form oh, the timeline so good. story. Uh, and so, but see, you would, I would have never, and, uh, and it's been on Good Morning America and stuff where they use clips from my interview on Good Morning America, which I know a lot of people that doesn't mean anything but for me a kid who four years ago was smoking and drinking and abusing substances in his car fantasizing about meeting these people let alone having a body of work that millions of people enjoyed to think that that idea and the breakup would interview this to be his friend 
to like have all this happen and like be on Good Morning America and now the strip. And not only that, uh, Eva Longoria is directing that movie on his life. Yeah. And uh, he'll call me and be like, dude, Eva Longoria came over. Like, can you believe that? <laughs> like Eva Longoria saw my interview with him, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, vanity things, I mean, they don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things, but to me, that's like a very fulfilling thing. And he's so humble about it. So um, in short, I would say humble, inspiring, and uh, proof proof of, of possibility. He, he went yeah. from being a janitor making $3 an hour, as he tells me, to um, having dinner with every single U.S. president since uh, 1985. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, there's, gonna, there's a lot of people, I'm going to finish with this, there's a lot of people who are listening to this who know both you and me because of our time together, you actually showed, I think your team sent me this recent clip and they said something like just our show had 7 million watched minutes. Yeah. And it's not even been a year since, which is crazy. And that's just YouTube. That's not podcast, Spotify. That's just YouTube. Yeah. Which is amazing. So uh, team wanted me to ask you yes. um, about apart from the, apart from the cops. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about our show? Do you remember? Oh my God. Dude, uh, till this day, that, I would say that was probably one of the top three, four shows for sure. Um, man, the day was awesome. Uh, but I think the thing in particular, like when I think of you or when people ask, uh, and I have when people say, what's your favorite? I have a time or two uh, mention this is like, uh, the one thing I love about you is that, you know, whereas most people, when they ask for advice or give advice, they give advice from an intuitive place. Um, but you give it from an intuitive plus methodical place, you know, like, uh, you'll say, well, you know, the frame of reference I use is X, Y, Z, you know, and I think that you have a really good, um, um, you have a really good way of telling stories, first of all, but, but, but more than that, you have a great way of, um, helping somebody filter their own, uh, processes, their own questions and communicating in a way that people can like take the reference you're using. And it's actually very practical. And they can put that filter onto their own ideas to pop out their ideal thing. So I think you do that really well in how you communicate. In terms of the day, um, I think I remember raccoons. I remember police. I remember a lot of laughter. Uh, I remember there was like helicopters above. Uh, I remember it was like an open house. Uh, I remember we were trying to set up the shop for a while. Uh, man, it, that was a fun day. A fun I just day. remember, I just remember a lot of laughter, a lot of wisdom, a lot of stories, uh, and a lot of good one-liners, you know? Um, wh what's your thing about, um, good, good Process. processes drives Process. good, good, drives good results. Um, there's no room for fear on paper. Uh, you know, so you're, you're a very, uh, methodical, wise, timeless systems, you know, type of guy. And I, and I just love that. And also, what I, what I love about, about you, dude, in particular, is that you, you don't have any sort of pretentious ego. You're very, like, you're very honest and real. And I think that's why people uh, are magnetized by you. I think that's why people trust you. I think that's why the interview did so freaking well. Because uh, I looked online and, like, you, like you've done interviews, but, I mean, not, nothing even remotely close to the point oh, no. of that. That was a, that was a beast. And, the, and honestly, that was, like, an almost two-hour interview. So, I mean to hook people for two hours on YouTube, uh, that, that tells you something, but yeah, I mean, I think you're, and I think you're the best world-class storyteller I've ever interviewed for sure. Oh man. Uh, I appreciate so that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, 
you are working on a lot of things right now. Um, What is the best place uh, for folks to connect with you, find more about you? How can they go deeper with the man himself? Yes. So you guys can find me on The Passionate Few or just Google my name. Um, You can find it on YouTube to see any of our interviews or content or even my interview with Sharon if you haven't. Uh, We have a new one coming out soon. Depending on when you're watching this, you'll be able to check that out. You guys can also find me on Facebook at Omar Alatar or on Instagram at Omar underscore the rock star. So yeah, you guys can be in touch there and I'm happy to be of value. If you guys enjoyed this uh, episode, do let me know. Hey man, I can't, um, I can't, I can't thank you enough ever since the time we got to spend time together. This has been an awesome relationship. You're uh, you're, you're a really good friend of mine. I get to talk to you. I get to connect with your network. I get to help your clients, which is a, which is super powerful for me as well. And, uh, you are, you are with the world needs more Omar Alatars and I can't thank you enough for being on the show. Thank you so much, man. I have one quick question before we wrap. Uh, I have to do this as the interviewer. What's the one thing if somebody's watching or listening to this right now, what's the one takeaway item that you would encourage them to do today that you've seen as a pattern for people who are maybe trying to get to the next level, but never quite get there. What's your one piece of wisdom that's at the top of your mind today to, that you think could help people? Yeah, you're so good at this. I'd say from an action tactical perspective, if Omar has not shown you the power of specificity, just think about this. The fortune favors the specific. If you can actually say, here's my vivid vision. I, I see this office. I see this color paint on the wall. I have this plant in the corner. I have this wood paneling. I'm sitting with three dual, three triple monitors. I have, you know, I have a built-in YouTube set. I have all of that because when it comes to life, you start to use it as a filter. And I think a lot of times we are, we don't want to commit to that vivid vision because we're afraid if we're going to reach it. In fact, I think that when we commit to the specific vivid vision, it, it starts to like become a reality. And I know you showed me a picture. You, you actually took a photo of like what you're written down early on and you showed it to me. And I was like, it's so real. That's so true. So I'd say fortune favors the specific. And, uh, and you said it best. You said, all the ideas don't need to come out completely formed. Right. And so yeah. at least start the specificity and it'll start to, it'll start to really ramp up. I'm going to show you something really quick uh, to your audience. It's a super quick, super short. Um, for those of you who can't see it on audio, we'll make sure you see it in the show notes. Yeah. And, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll explain it. Essentially what it was is a photo when I started the passionate view, I had such a vision for it. Um, and I didn't necessarily know how it would happen. I just knew that it would. And so I took a photo um, and my ex-girlfriend's on the floor in my ex-girlfriend's room and I called it nostalgia photo. This is September 19th, 2016. And it says, I don't know if you can read it. Oh, yeah. It says, says, Omar starting the passionate few. uh, Started from the bottom. Started from the bottom. And the title of the email is Nostalgia Pictures. So good. And the photo is me like this. Dude, you have to send me that. I got to put that in the show notes. I wrote down, I wrote down this whole prophecy of the plan. And it says this, it says the good old days to look back at and always remember where you came from. Mind you, when I wrote this wrong, I'm $30,000 in debt. I'm uh, drinking like crazy. I'm in self-sabotage mode, but I just believed in the vision. And here's one last thing. Um, and I've become obsessed with this point. Um, people think it's like foo-foo, but I, I totally believe it. We move towards the image we hold in our minds most often. Yeah. 
And so some people, you know, and I've told my parents this, some people, the image they hold in their mind, believe it or not, people don't hold healthy images of their future in their mind. Yeah. And then they get surprised when life shows up and it's not what they wanted. I have, I'm, I, I rarely meet people who are successful or wealthy that didn't tell me that that was a big part of their commitment to get there. You know, I love Laguna Beach. My plan is to God willing uh, live, if not oceanfront in Laguna Beach, very close to ocean, yeah. to, yeah. to the ocean in Laguna Beach, um, or with a beautiful view of Laguna Beach, which we'll probably be there soon, but I would love to do it on, with certain financial goals as well. Um, not just barely get there, but, you know, anyways. And so for me, I hold that in my mind so intensely that even with the interviews, I imagine, hi, I'm Tony Robbins. I'm one of the passionate few. You know, hi, I'm the, I see it, I hear it. I've heard it a zillion times before it ever became a reality. And so I tell my parents this, I say, you know, some people, when they look at their future, say they're 40 right? and they look at, oh, well, when I'm 60, I'm going to be old and, you know, wrinkly. And like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a, you know, a hard time. My bones are going to be brittle. I'm going to not have energy versus you have other 60 year olds that are running marathons that are yeah. fit, that are healthy, that are alive, that are vibrant, that are having sex every day with their significant other. Right. So there's people that, that are, that are at the same age as living a completely different life. And the difference uh, is the image we hold in our mind because of it. And so one thing I would encourage your audience to do is um, sort of turn on the light of your future. If you're, imagine your future right now in the vague sense of it. And almost like, for, I would bet you most people's is a little dim. Turn on the lights a little bit, make it a little bit brighter, make it a little bit funnier, make it a little bit more exciting, make it a little bit more compelling, make it a little bit more what you want it to be. And it will blow you away at how, Little you actually have to know about the how to get there. Yeah. Versus if you just have it, you will you will naturally move there through imperfect action. Uh, you will naturally move there, and little by little, their actions will become more and more well informed. You'll meet the right people. But we move towards the image we hold in our mind. So make sure the image you're holding in your mind, even if it's delusionary. I mean, dude, I wrote this down with absolutely no reason. Yeah. That would blow up. No reason. But I, you know, they did this study at MIT. And I know we're supposed to end the podcast, but where That's they studied point. optimists versus pessimists, and they found that pessimists, pessimists um, they measured them over a five-year period um, based on X amount of criteria. Um, so anybody who wants to get technical, ignore the analogy. But if you'll roll with me uh, and, and, and just sort of pay attention to the moral, I think you'd be blown away. It, he, they talked about how pessimists were actually much more realistic uh, as to what was going on. But over a five-year span, uh, they had worse health higher divorce rates and a lower income than the people who are delusional optimists because <laughs> the delusional optimist sees it better than it better, better than it is. And so is more willing to take action because they think there will be a result, even if there's no promise of placebo effect, right? You know, yeah. if you take action, if, if I take a, a pessimist would say, why would you chase Grant Cardone for an interview? That's stupid. Uh, an optimist goes, but maybe he'll say yes. And maybe that'll be the one that gets me another. And maybe that'll get me views. And maybe I can build a business on it. And maybe that, and then you get it. And then you're like, oh, and then now your delusional optimism becomes a reality. And then boom, you got that. And you do another one and another one and another one. And another. pretty soon you're in a momentum of delusional optimism uh, that, that just sort of builds more of the momentum than your logical pessimist brain. So um, I think it's very important for people to remember that we move towards the image we hold in our mind. So I would encourage you to ask yourself, what's the image you're holding in your mind? You know, and, and, and what was the image that brought you to this moment? And how would you like to change it for the next moment? And I think if you do that, you'll be much further along than most people. We move towards the images we hold in our mind most consistently, period. 
So good. Ladies and gentlemen, my, uh, my friend, Omar Altar. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sharon. Hey, Sharon, I have a cool gift for you. I took some of my best ideas from the last 20 years and created a five-day MBA. It's quick and action-packed that you can listen to on the go, just like this podcast. And I want to give it to you for free, just as a thank you for listening to the show. No fluff, no gimmicks, just pure actionable ideas for you to use instantly. You can grab it right now at businessschoolshow.com. That's businessschoolshow.com. Dot com.